Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news as well as insight and analysis on all the topics you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles. We're going to start, Duncan, as always, with some news, breaking news that we can bring. And that is that the representatives of Max Allegri, the former Juventus boss, who, of course, is out of work. And as Duncan revealed a few weeks ago on the pod, has been living in London and learning English, have been contacted by Arsenal with regards to the possibility of taking over at the Emirates. This, of course, comes on the back of yet another disappointing result for the Gunners last weekend. Um, You know, Emery coming under more and more pressure and more and more criticism. We can also tell you that an unscheduled board meeting of the Arsenal directors is due to take place in the next 48 hours to discuss the current plight and the possible replacement of Emery as head coach. Duncan, I don't know if you uh, what you made of uh, the weekend's performance for Arsenal. It was lackadaisical. It was uh, unimpressive. It was very, very poor, especially a team at home and the way that they uh, conducted themselves um, in terms of their defensive duties and indeed trying to win the ball in midfield. Emery seems to be becoming a continuing figure of fun um, for all sorts of uh, reasons, including the club's results. Would it surprise you if uh, Allegri was indeed the one that is going to be anointed as the next Arsenal boss? I'm not sure um, that they will necessarily go for Max Allegri, and I'm not sure that Max Allegri will necessarily go for them. I mean, we've we've told you in great detail about Allegri's um, thinking on his next job. It's been something that he has been assessing for well over a year now. He's been close. He was close to leaving Juventus um, before he was dismissed by the club, and and it was a very much a friendly dismissal, as we've told you in the podcast, in the sense that um, Andrea Agnelli. Uh, would have retained the coach, but his um, technical director, sports director staff wanted a change and um, he has kept uh, Allegri on full pay um, during that the, this year he's been out of work. And, and as you say, Allegri's been using that sabbatical to you know, recharge his ener- energies, spend time with his family. He spent a period of that time in England um, improving his English language skills. But his focus is on getting himself into a club where he has the opportunity to win things. He wants to be a competitor for the national title and he wants to win the Champions League at his next club. And the people close to him are consistent in saying that for a job like Arsenal, um, a job like Everton, which um, you mentioned a few weeks ago, there'd been been an approach 
um, from a third party towards Allegri to see whether he'd be interested in that job. It would be very, very hard to convince him, I think, for Everton in particular, that that was the right thing to do. And I think Arsenal would, would find it difficult as well to sell the project to Allegri. Because if, if, if you, you assess this from Allegri's perspective, knowing that he wants to compete for titles and the biggest titles of all, you're coming into a situation where Liverpool have barely lost a game all season and have Jurgen Klopp in charge and have a, a very strong squad and uh, plenty of money in reserve to uh, change and improve that squad as necessary. You've got Manchester City with Guardiola in charge, um, the only team who are re realistic contenders to Liverpool at present, who will probably spend a lot of money in the summer, particularly if as the you know, there are noises coming out that they're going to be let off without a Champions League ban for their multiple transgressions of uh, financial fair play rules. If that is the case, if um, they are only fined for those breaches, as we, told, we suggested in the podcast, that's effectively bringing the curtains down on financial fair play and giving Abu Dhabi the green light to pump large amounts of cash into the transfer market um, to ensure that they don't finish second in another Premier League. You've also got Chelsea um, resurging um, and, and in a very positive place. And if Roman Abramovich decides to spend again, he's, he will have had a, at least half a year uh, maybe an entire year without having to put any money into the transfer market and seeing the value of his youth players radically increase. So they are proper contenders. And then you have Jose Mourinho being appointed at Tottenham, which um, again, financially in a very strong position, have a very good squad and have upgraded their management. So that that is quite a daunting prospect to come into Arsenal um, as the guy who's supposed to solve the problems after they've uh, invested heavily in, in Unai Emery. Um, you've got to say Emery's position is in, now in, in very severe doubt. You look at the, the, the results, they're now the last eight matches, just one win over um, Vittoria Guimaraes. And even in that game, they weren't particularly convincing. Um, Arsenal told me um, a few weeks ago that they were not looking to replace Emery when we reported um, on the podcast that they had begun the process of assessing replacements and that um, the head of football, Raul Sanyehi, was very much involved in that and had sounded out um, Jose Mourinho at, as to whether he would be interested in taking the job. Um, Arsenal denied that that was the case and denied that they were looking for a new manager. Um, I think they will not be able to hold to that position very long given where results are, given where their support is. Um, I mean, Emery was very close to losing at home to Southampton, who are a team with uh, very much with the struggles of their own at present. Um, and you you wonder, given you know the problems we've detailed in the dressing room, the, the issues he has with communication, um, the issues players have with, with um, wondering what he wants from them and whether he can get across his message during games, how long they can carry this on. Because Arsenal's stance going into this season was that it was in a very important season. They have to get Champions League football qualification back um, to strengthen their finances and give, give themselves a platform to start going for their stated 
long or medium to long term target, which is to be contenders for Premier League title and be contenders for the Champions League again. So there, there's there's only so long you can go with this sort of disquiet in the dressing room, disquiet with the support and um, poor set of results. Um, and, and it makes no it's no surprise that they would be talking to Allegri's representatives and trying to find out whether he would be interested in taking on that job. Well, the pressure certainly increased on them, Duncan, with regards to the poor results continuing. And of course, looking across North London at their rivals, Tottenham Hotspur, who took up the option of employing the only elite coach currently available to start work immediately, which of course was Josie Mourinho. That, of course, increases the pressure on Arsenal to act in terms of um, Emery's position, the way the results are going and uh, attempts to rescue what is already looking like a poor season for them. Perhaps a more um, credible, realistic, practical candidate would be Julian Nagelsmann from RB Leipzig, who we understand has also been contacted by a third party with regards to would he be willing to move mid-season a coach who obviously has taken Leipzig to new heights in terms of um, their positions in the Bundesliga, playing Champions League football as well. Young coach, 32 years old, working on a relatively small budget. It's not RB Leipzig. Um, so possibly, Duncan, he would be more suited to the Arsenal role than Allegri, who likes to be able to uh, employ and buy players at a higher level. And as you said, having won multiple Scudettos and Coppa Italia uh, wishes to have the opportunity to do that again. At Arsenal, that looks quite far away. Uh, Nagelsmann may well be the man to sort the problem out sort of short and medium term. I think there's look, there's a risk with both of those candidates. If you just had an issue with language in the dressing room, then you would want to be sure that Allegri's um, English language learning process is well advanced. Um, you know, Allegri is, like Emery in many ways, a very tactically detailed manager. Um, you know, I've talked to players who've worked with Allegri and they're um, very positive and a lot of praise for the way he understands games and can set out plans for matches and predict the way the opponents are going to play. Um, and, and that kind of work is is blunted if you don't have um, a very strong command of the, of the dressing room language. So I think that would be uh, something that Arsenal would have to think about. And then Nagelsmann very much, um, you know, heralded as a potential future superstar of coaching. But again, that that's, that's a risky move to take someone who's young, um, who has only ever worked in one league um, and transplant him into a very competitive scenario um, with, you know, lots of issues around the club um, and, and particularly to do so during the season, um, you know, you, you it, it would be easier to do that over when the, when the coach has a pre-season to work with um, and lots of time to build relationships with the players and get a sense of, of who they are and how they work um, before he's thrust into competition. So I don't, I don't see that as an obvious solution in itself. We know that... Um, that they were very strongly interested in Mikel Arteta um, at the point at which they hired Unai Emery. Um, and Arteta is a, an appointment who had 
again, I think would would be popular with a lot of the Arsenal fans and would certainly um, have a, a kind of public air of, uh, of, of forward thinking about it because he has no track record as a manager. So there's nothing to criticise him about. And it, and it all seems, you know, you have that halo effect from working with Pep Guardiola. Um, obviously, Arteta is someone that Everton have been looking at as an option um, should they choose to replace Marco Silva, which... Um, the noises coming from Everton at present are very much it's a matter of when rather than if um, Silva is replaced. So, I, I, look, from what, what, I, what I, I've been told about Sanyehi's search is he's drawn up an extensive list of criteria that he's looking for in a new coach and is looking at a number of options to see who the best fit would be. But you, the way Arsenal are set up, Sanyehi will not have an absolute say on that. He will have to get Kroenke buy-in to make the change and to appoint uh, the coach he suggests would be the right replacement for Emery if they decide to push the button on that and make a change during the season. Well, I guess if speaking good England is the main criteria, then I think the Granada XL is being fired up as we speak. Sam, the Sam signal has gone out in the sky. Make your way to North London. Speaking of uh, Arsenal potential coaches, uh, rather interestingly, but also I suppose you would say bizarrely, um, the former Tottenham coach, uh, only five days out of work, Mauricio Pochettino, has been linked with the Arsenal job at Duncan. Now, um, I am told a group of Tottenham players um, went to see Pochettino last weekend at his home in London because they didn't get the chance to say goodbye personally to him. Um, I think you'll all have seen the uh, heartfelt and emotional message he left on the tactics board, uh, possibly one of his best ever, he would admit, uh, in terms of response. Um, And he laughed off the prospect of managing Arsenal when chatting with his former charges uh, during that conversation. He also, I understand... Uh, made it uh, clear that his best case scenario would be to have some time off from football. Uh, we told you that he's being paid a monthly salary as always, uh, as normal by Spurs, rather than having a compensation package lump sum agreed. Therefore, he's got no financial worries in that sense in terms of taking a bit of time off and even maybe a, a longer sabbatical. But he also intimated that when he returns to management, um, he wants it to be uh, with a club where he believes that he can build uh, towards winning trophies. And of course, um, Manchester United and Real Madrid were both clubs who were heavily, heavily interested in him up until the spring of this year when they changed uh, or they awarded Solskjaer the job at Old Trafford. And of course, Zidane came back to Real Madrid. I think, uh, and I'm sure you'd agree, Duncan, that Pochettino's take on this is that one of those managers, maybe even both, uh, may not last this season. If they do, they may not last the um, close season next summer. In which case, Pochettino, uh, while on gardening leave, essentially, would be a prime candidate to take on one of those roles. If he's being quite open about that with his former players, um, then I, you know, I would suggest that he's confident, Duncan, that that could be the way his career takes its next chapter. It's no surprise that he'd be confident about those clubs being interested in him, given that Real Madrid wanted to hire him. 
previously and, and were unable to do so because Levy would not allow him to, to leave the club after just after signing a new contract. Um, he knows Zidane has been on the verge of being sacked for some time now. Um, we told you on the podcast on Friday that, uh, that Mourinho had enraged um, Florentino Perez in the Madrid hierarchy by taking the Tottenham job when they felt they had an agreement with Mourinho that he would replace Zidane when they were able to dismiss him. So that, again, that Zidane is basically... Zidane's sacking is something that is pretty much a matter of when rather than if. And um, Pochettino is now available for hire. Um, so... Uh, he's in a good position there. Manchester United have talked to Pochettino about becoming manager um, in 2016 um, when they eventually decided to uh, appoint Mourinho rather than Pochettino. He has admirers, very significant admirers uh, on the Manchester United board. My information is that Ed Woodward um, will propose him and does want to propose him as a replacement for Solskjaer should they need to make a change and obviously if Solskjaer's um, performances in the Premier League continue in the direction they've gone you know we're now on just four wins in 13 games the Premier League obviously that um, three decade long um worst start in the Premier League ever after Solskjaer had all the things he, he was asking for, this idea that the pre-season having his own pre-season and the high intensity work they would do there would make a huge difference to the way the team played, um, record spending on the defence um, you know, the, Manchester United have, have given him a good grounds in which to work and they've been extremely supportive of him on a, on a public basis um, yet performances continue um, as they have been for months now. We're not just talking about this season, we're talking about the end of last season and and the errors continue so that that performance against Sheffield United um, at the weekend, albeit he came out with a 3-3 draw, um, the first half was a, was a tactical debacle. I, he, he set up with three at the back, outnumbered in midfield by Sheffield United. Uh, Sheffield United, I think, had five shots on target, seven in the first half, three for of what Opta describes as big chances. Um, this so far this season, they had been averaging one shot per thirty minutes of Premier League football. They had almost more shots on target in forty-five minutes against Solskjaer's Manchester United than they have had in a, an entire Premier League game so far this season. Um, their best so far had been six. Um, and on top of that, once he got back into the game and got three goals in, in seven minutes, he brings on Axel Tuanzebi for Anthony Martial, seeds um, possession and, and that threat um, to back to Sheffield United and they, they equalise at the end. Um, you know, as a... a, a a coach um, sent me a message after that game, um, uh, basically saying, you know, Solskjaer gets scores three goals in seven minutes uh, without knowing how, and then takes out Martial and plays two and Zebi, and just laughing, at, basically laughing at that, at the decision making and the errors that keep mounting up um, from a manager who I think has just demonstrated that he is out of his depth in the Premier League. But um, I believe still not a word of criticism from our friend Gary Neville um, on the tactical approach, on the, any no, of the decisions no, he, that were made during that game. 
he was damning Duncan uh, in commentary. Um, the most damning thing probably said is the movement from James, Daniel James, that is, obviously. Rashford and Martial has been a joke, as has the midfield. Um, and, yeah, it was all about the players letting Ollie down again. Um, although, uh, I mean, I thought it was interesting, Solskjaer's post-match comments, um, two of which I've just picked out here as being the kind of thing that you just cannot imagine. So Alex Ferguson, his mentor, of course, and uh, hero saying, uh, he said, I could have changed all 11 players at halftime, to be honest. Then corrected himself and said, well, no, maybe I'd leave David in. Uh, De Gea, obviously, that is. And then admitted that Sheffield United wanted it more than us. Again, a very damning indictment of his own uh, tactical approach, his motivational, uh, if there are any qualities there, because surely that is his job, is to motivate his players to want it more than the opposition. So to sort of throw his players under a bus by saying, well, it was their fault because uh, they never rose to challenge Sheffield United seemed just a little bit kind of, I don't know, naughty to me. Um, when clearly uh, every manager, eventually the buck stops at him. But Solskjaer has decided that, you know, the buck's going to stop anywhere else. It's, look, that those kind of comments are extremely dangerous with the dressing room because the players aren't stupid. They know that Solskjaer, or a percentage of them will know that Solskjaer set them up the wrong way for that game. And they'll know that when uh, changes were made to the setup. Um, and and they had different a different uh, a number of bodies in the midfield. They got more grip on the match. So to purely criticise the players for not um, performing in that first half, um, and to suggest that Sheffield the reason that they were a goal down at half time was because Sheffield United wanted it more is is laying the the blame on players. And you know we've told you in the podcast that there is a significant number of players in that dressing room who do not rate. Solskjaer as a manager they consider him to be a nice guy um, but they think the way he trains the team and the way he prepares them for games is not at elite level uh, and it's a very English approach to physical training um, and it, you know they don't they don't consider him to be the level of manager they would expect from Manchester United so if he then goes into a press conference where they feel, and I think they, they are absolutely right in feeling, that he, the manager, had made the mistakes that put them in an invidious position in the game. And he then blames the players for that invidious position. That will not do him any favours and will not help his, his case um, short-term, medium-term, long-term in terms of remaining in charge of that squad. And we've seen what can happen with Manchester United players um, when they've had enough of the manager. Well, the, the, the blatant and obvious truth of uh, the performance against Sheffield United is that they scored three goals in seven minutes, but played for effectively 15 of the 95. Now, you're right, we've seen teams before, when they don't believe in the, the guy at the top, the manager, they don't believe in his methods, they don't believe in his team selections, then this is the kind of performance you get. You get sloppy, you get lazy, you think in your own head we're we're a man short because of the way he set us up or, you know. But this is Manchester United against Sheffield United. Two of the most recent summer signings, Juan Basaka and Harry Maguire, cost more than Sheffield United have ever spent in the entire history of the club. Now, I know that there's a relevant factor there, and I'm not you know, denying that, but this 
is the depth of contrast between those two clubs and those two sides. And yet it was Sheffield United who played like the old Manchester United. Or as Graham soon has said, it was like watching Barcelona sometimes. Now that may be a little bit of exaggeration or hyperbole, but as it's Graham, we'll let him off. Um, fact of the matter is, they just, they, they did not turn up. Solskjaer said it, they wanted it more than us. I could have changed uh, 11 players at half time. You're right, Duncan. That players effectively have been accused of not doing their best or at worst, cheating, i.e. not giving their best. Something Roy Keane has pointed out on individual players uh, this season already after only 13 games. Now, there's a, there's a root problem there. This isn't just the first time, as you said, four wins in 13 games, no clean sheets in 12 away games now. Um, this just isn't good enough. And th- th- there is something more rotten at the core here, which needs to be addressed. And if it's not, then performance will continue to get worse. And people who... Uh, especially any Manchester United fans out there who are deluding themselves by saying that those seven minutes and three goals were signs of some kind of recovery or, oh, let's do it the Man United way. This is what we do. We go two goals down, but then we score three. That's not how you win trophies. And you will not win trophies playing like that. Unless, of course, you're doing it every week and winning three points every week the way Liverpool are. But Manchester United are not. And so something does need to be addressed. And I suspect... I don't know about you, Duncan, that the United job will come up bef- possibly before Real Madrid. Or if not, Pochettino may well decide to look at Manchester and think, well, the bar's pretty low there in terms of what I can achieve. Uh, whereas at Real, it's always chaotic and you can last six weeks or, well, two years, I think, is the average of sacking managers at Real. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, I think Pochettino's n- availability will certainly make Solskjaer's uh, the scrutiny on him, certainly, much more uh, uh, intense. And at some point, United people who are, who are running Manchester United will have to take a look and say, right, is there someone out there, Pochettino, who could do a better job? It puts additional pressure on, on Solskjaer in two ways, what, what's happened over the last week. One is Pochettino is available. Um, so it's not no longer a case of are the board prepared to try and buy him out of his contract um, and and leverage him away from from Daniel Levy and, and get him in his uh, into the place. The fans can see he's out of work. They know there's an interest there from Pochettino's part, so the change is much easier to make. And the second problem for Solskjaer is that Jose Mourinho is back in the Premier League, um, and if he manages to uh, turn around Tottenham season and delivers good results uh, and uh, re-establishes his reputation while at Tottenham, then even bigger question marks will be placed over Solskjaer's performance at Manchester United because he's gone from taking over a team that finished second in the, the Premier League the season before he came in and won two major trophies the season before that to um, presiding over the worst Premier League start in over 30 years. And this, you know, the statistic after statistic that goes against them, team that doesn't score many goals, you know, it, it's almost like the only thing Solskjaer is able to do is talk a good game. And perhaps that's even um, departing him with, you know, as we've mentioned, that, that what he said in the press conference after the match. Because once you start saying those things, um, 
you endanger relationships with players. And this isn't the first time we've seen him endangering relationship with players. You know, we pointed out that he decided to make Axel Tuanzebi captain against Rochdale in the League Cup tie when the senior player on the field was Paul Pogba, when he discussed uh, reinstating Pogba as a potential captain of Manchester United. He gives the captaincy to a kid who had barely started previous Manchester United matches. Paul Pogba, the game goes to penalties. Pogba is almost entirely absent in that match. Definitely the worst performance of the season from him. Game goes to penalties. Paul Pogba, who has been one of the designated penalty kick takers for Manchester United, does not take a penalty and has not played a game for Uli Gunnar Solskjaer since. Um, now, the story is that that is because of injury, but um, I think there is more to what has gone on there than simply an injury in that match. Um, Pogba was not impressed by Tuanzebi being given the captaincy, and um, it will be interesting to see if Solskjaer can manage to get him back into the team uh, before the new year and um, how Pogba will play if he is back under the team under Solskjaer. And there are other players in that dressing room who Solskjaer has burnt bridges with and lost um, their full commitment to the team. So you, you make these decisions at your peril. Um, and it, it probably seemed like a good idea to make Axel Tuanzebi captain. It was an excellent PR move. Manchester United fans liked it. It says, oh, I buy into my academy. This is the future of the club. All those buttons he likes pushing in press conferences but it has repercussions. Well, Paul Pogba has been uh, doing his rehab, so we're told, in Dubai and Miami, apparently, which doesn't say um, a lot about his commitment to the club because usually a player of that stature and et cetera, et cetera, would be spend that entire time in rehab at the club's training ground so that everyone can monitor him properly and make sure that his uh, training programme and his rehab is on schedule but still no sign. So, yes, that will be interesting, Duncan, to see how that fence is mended, if indeed it can be. Let's talk a little bit about uh, um, Jose Mourinho's first game in charge of Tottenham at West Ham. Um, clearly, um, a huge improvement on the away form of a, of a team who hadn't won uh, in the Premier League away from home. I think it was obvious that the lift that the players got Duncan from New Magic coming in. I know that Jose had said after the game, I have no impact. All I did was give them some help. And certainly his line to um, Deli Ali that, so are you Deli Ali's brother? Because <laughs> I've not seen the real Deli around for a while now. Uh, had a, definitely had a positive effect on that, that guy's performance because he was sensational. Yeah, I, I think that there, there's clearly a huge element of new manager bounce in that performance. Um, you saw a Tottenham team who um, needed to to win that match and needed to demonstrate to their new manager that they they were able um, to deliver what they've been delivering in the past. Um, so it, it wasn't a surprise to see the intensity with which they they played. Um, I think the elements Mourinho added was to involve a degree of variation in their tactical approach. So you still saw them playing the ball from the back, but it was interspersed with some more direct balls to their forward line, um, which worked very well. And they weren't all just going to Harry Kane, they were going to Son and they were going to Lucas Moura. And they were, they were catching West Ham open because 
um, I guess West Ham weren't sure how Tottenham were going to play in that match because if you're doing your tactical analysis on the opponents, you would see that they they basically had been taking everything um, short build up from the back all season, but now they have a new manager who has a history of of intermixing different approaches. So you don't know how it's going to work. Um, I think it it was an interesting example of what Mourinho can do with that forward line. Um, a lot of really quick, technically good players um, who are able to create chances between them and um, combine well going forward. And, and, you know, that's kind of the ideal recipe for a, a Mourinho team in terms of when they play um, top opponents in the Champions League and big opponents in the Premier League, um, he can damage them on the counter-attack with a forward line like that. So I think that's evidence of why he has talked up the squad so much and has been um, excited about working with them. Um, and yeah, um, a great performance from Deli Ali, um, who was integral to that kind of move, unpredictable movement the, the forward line had and the, the chance creation that they, they produced for the first 60 minutes of the match and really it should have been more than a 3-0 lead um, given the, the opportunities um, that were created playing that way. So a solid start um, and, a, and an important one and you know I think Mourinho was quite nervous. I think he said he wasn't nervous but talking to people who know him well they, they suggested that they could see a degree of nervousness from him on the touchline and, um, and he knew that win was important to to kind of build on the work he'd done on the training ground with the players in the first week, telling them that they were better than the league position and telling them that um, he'd be the guy who could help them uh, make that final jump to winning silverware rather than just getting close to it. From what I heard, Duncan, the main message um, in the team meeting on Friday, having only had two full training sessions with his squad, was... Um, you might think that I'm going to come in and wave some kind of tactical magical wand and all of a sudden, you know, results are going to change. And he said, and you and you may well see that at some point, but what I'm going to do tomorrow is I'm going to play uh, best players in their best positions. So I'm going to play 4-2-3-1, uh, Moura, Son and Delhi in the three behind Kane, Winks and Dyer in, in the holding roles. And we know the Spurs' defensive problems, what they've been already. And of course, we saw it in the dying minutes of the game when they conceded two goals. But uh, I thought that the, the confidence in the players was borne out by the idea that, well, I've got a job to do. And guess what? It's the one that I know how to do best. So I feel confident in myself to perform. I feel confident in my teammates. I thought that's what we saw coming through. Yeah, and another important game for them this week. So the, the Champions League tie against Olympiakos yeah. is an opportunity to secure their place in the knockout stages of the Champions League, which I think is going to be an important competition for Mourinho. As I said on Friday, it wouldn't surprise me if he's targeting that as one potential route into the Champions League next season, given that they made the final um, last year. And given that kind of attacking uh, firepower he has, um, which in combination with his, his ability to analyse opponents and come up with strategies to play against them um, could be a very potent weapon for Tottenham going forward. 
And of course, sitting just a few metres away from Jose in his first game as Tottenham manager was uh, Manuel Pellegrini, who finds himself under even more pressure in this time of managerial merry-go-round, Duncan. Um, I'm told that West Ham, while there is a reluctance to sack him, uh, they've invested heavily in uh, his judgment with regards to uh, transfers, etc., etc. Um, they see results obviously uh, are getting worse. Um, no club in the Premier League, especially a club like West Ham United, can afford to be in relegation trouble. For that reason, they have um, given authorization for certain people to sound out other coaches um, about availability and willingness to come to the London Stadium. One of those is the former Brighton manager, Chris Hewton, uh, who obviously has a lot of experience in the Premier League, both as an assistant at Tottenham and also obviously his four years, uh, two of them being the Premier League with Brighton Hove Albion. I would say Chris is more of a safe pair of hands than the kind of manager that West Ham fans would necessarily warm to, Duncan. Uh, you know, at Brighton, he tended to be very defensive. It was always about not losing the game. So I'm not sure that if if they went down that road, uh, if results didn't turn around quickly, you wouldn't get the same moans and groans from those famously loyal West Ham fans. Well, look, we've seen this at West Ham before where they've, they've put pragmatic um, coaches in to retain Premier League status or get them into the Premier League so that they're not averse to going down that route. Um, the project was supposed to be at a different stage now with um, Manuel Pellegrini, who they, they have spent a lot of money on employing and they've spent a lot of money on um, more forward-looking players. So if they do go... The Hewton route, it's it's that, you know, preserve Premier League status. Um, you know, you would know how Chris Hewton was as a manager far better than me because of the, the amount of time you spend um, working with Brighton. Um, but I think there is a question mark there of whether Chris, for all his qualities, um, could produce a team that will play the kind of football that the West Ham owners want and the West Ham supporters want but um, you're also getting to that stage of the season where owners are getting nervous and uh, where they're prioritising safety and if you're prioritising safety then Chris Hewton is certainly not a bad bet at all um, and, and it is big big money um, at stake to keep your place in the Premier League and we've got a, a similar calculation I think going on at Everton at, at the moment um, in terms of them uh, deciding whether they have to fall on the Marco Silva sword and write that appointment off and uh, and get someone else in um, to take over there. And obviously you have Bill Kenwright pushing very, very hard for the, 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 the fix, the pragmatic fix to be David Moyes, his old friend and uh, the manager who produced the best results for Everton over his period as um, one of the senior directors at the club. Um, I'm told by uh, people who have worked inside Everton that basically Bill Kenwright has proposed David Moyes as uh, a replacement for the incumbent manager every time they have dismissed a coach uh, in recent years. Um, and the feeling is that this time he might get his way because um, Marco Silva was very much Farhad Mashiri's um, project and proposal and therefore Mashiri although he is 
far more influential in terms of the share ownership of the club and being the the face of the share on, of the majority share ownership of the club um, might have to cede um, to Ken Wright in this appointment with Ken Wright saying essentially I told you so and uh, and advocating the return of Moyes to Goodison. Be very interesting. I mean, one of the problems that clubs like Everton and West Ham, for that matter, have is, the, if you like, the identity um, contrasting to the reality. So the identity the fans place on their club, um, which is, you know, we were a once great club who won trophies. We want to be back there again. We want to be playing entertaining football and, you know, watching that week in, week out, et cetera, et cetera. So, if you go for the pragmatic approach in the likes of Chris Hutton for West Ham or indeed David Moyes for Everton, I guess your your best case scenario, if you're the club, is to just give them a contract till the end of the season and say, right, prove to us that you're the man to not just improve results, but you're the man for the longer term. But of course, when you're in a position of weakness like that, Duncan, in terms of your ability to employ a manager, um, when you're in trouble and you want them to get you out of trouble, is it that that coach will say, well, I'm not coming unless you give me two and a half, three years? At which point, you're between a rock and a hard place because unless he's very successful, you're just stuck with another average manager who's not getting the right results and you have to end up paying him off as well. And so many clubs get themselves into this kind of cycle of, of you know destruction almost by making short-term appointments uh, or indeed not sticking with a manager who, yeah, he's maybe performing badly now, but it could get better. Look, I, I think with Everton, they should be able to employ David Moyes without promising him a contract beyond the end of the season or, or a guaranteed contract beyond the end of the season. I mean, Moyes is, is a long, long way away from being a even a strong candidate for the majority of jobs in the Premier League and, and even the, you know, the bottom end jobs. In the Premier League, his, his reputation has has suffered over um, his choices following um, his, his period as Manchester United manager. So you should be able to recruit him um, to be that that fix, um, with the idea that if he fixes it, he will he will push to be given the job longer term. I think a bigger problem for Everton is that they have a very ambitious project, um, both on the field and off the field. Um, you know the, the the new stadium project is very expensive, but also they they want to get themselves into the Champions League places, and they've they've spent a huge amount of money trying to get themselves into a position where they can at least compete for Europa League and and you know be they they want to be something like Leicester City. They want to be in that position Leicester City are in now, and they have if you look at their spending compared to other clubs. In Europe, it's almost in the top 10 um, for gross expenditure and transfer fee commitments of all clubs in Europe, which is incredible given their performance. They have placed upon themselves a huge number of very expensive contracts for players who have proven themselves not to be up to the job, who they cannot get rid of because they're paying them so much money. The clubs who are interested in hiring them can't afford to to, to match those wages. So it, it's a really difficult managerial job to come into. Um, I don't see David Moyes being the, the answer in terms of that, uh, turning them into Champions League contenders. I do think he would, he would keep them up. But then where do you go next? 
as you ask. And and I think the whole thing is is even harder for them because Liverpool are so strong at present and so successful, have that Champions League title, um, basically have the Premier League title. Um, as, as we've said, it's their title to lose. And even, even Pep Guardiola is making noises that um, he doesn't have a joker in his pocket to, to take nine points back on a team of Liverpool's qualities and, you know, repeatedly saying the league is done, although in a way that has allowed them, allowed them a get out to say, oh, he was being sarcastic. But the, you know, the message from Manchester City essentially is we don't think we can, we can stop them from winning it this season. Um, Liverpool win the title, it becomes even harder to be an Everton supporter and to, to be the owners of Everton um, because the pressure on them increases and ramps up. Well, just a little vignette for you all because it, the, uh, it was the Football uh, Writers Association Northern Branch Awards Ceremony uh, last night and uh, both Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola turned up to give uh, speeches, which is nice to see. And uh, both brought their most um, impressive trophies. The Premier League trophy was there um, with Pep and the Champions League trophy was there with uh, Klopp. And at the end of his speech, Guardiola said, hey, Jurgi, shall we swap? So then he's got, <laughs> he's, he's got a sense of humour. He's got St. Pep cracks joke. Unbelievable scene. Duncan, Jose Mourinho um, has spoken a lot about not having a technical or sport director at Manchester United, both when he was there in the lateral part of his time because he felt that there was lots of obstructions and too much bureaucracy uh, between him and getting things done in the transfer market. Uh, as we know, um, our um, old friend Daniel Leverage uh, likes to be fully in charge of transfers at Tottenham Hotspur. But you've got an interesting uh, news about the possibility of there being a middleman. Yes, um, but my my information is that Mourinho is working to bring his friend um, Luis Campos to Tottenham Hotspur um, to work in that sports director recruitment role that Campos has excelled in at um, first Monaco and then Leo um, building the squad that took. Monaco to the 2016-17 French title, taking it off Paris Saint-Germain, who had a hugely larger budget than Monaco's, then moved to Lille um, and within uh, two seasons had turned them into a Champions League team being runners-up in Ligue 1. Um, just a, you know, a, a sample of the signings he's made for those two clubs from which they've made huge profits. You've got Fabinho, at Liverpool, probably the best defensive midfielder in the Premier League now, close to it, certainly in, in there alongside N'Golo Kante. Um, Thomas Lamar, who went to Atletico Madrid. Benjamin Mendy, who went to Manchester City for a record fee for a fullback and then um, suffered serious injury. Is kind of recovering his game. Nicola Pepe, who Arsenal spent a record fee on this summer. Um, Bernardo Silva, who I would argue was the most important player for Manchester City um, in their title season last year. And, of course, Kylian Mbappe, who is now the most expensive teenager in the history of the game. You would think that would be the kind of recruitment expertise and profit-making that would appeal to Daniel Levy. Um, I am told that 
Campus would be interested in the position, would be interested in working with Mourinho. He's on record um, as saying that uh, he, he could see himself working with Mourinho again, for whom he was a tactical scout at Real Madrid um, during uh, Mourinho's period there. But I'm also told that he'd want to spend some time with Levy and find out exactly what um, Daniel Leverage's feelings are about the role, whether he's prepared to go back to the sporting director model, which was obviously one that Levy championed in England. He was one of the first to make a prominent appointment in, in that area with Frank Harnison um, many years ago now. Um, Levy doesn't have a technical director at present. He had Franco Baldini there before Baldini exited essentially because of a bad relationship he had with Maurizio Pochettino, which I'm told came mainly from Pochettino's end. Um, the Tottenham then used Paul Mitchell uh, as their um, senior recruitment chief who, who had a close relationship with Pochettino and I'm told resigned his position basically when Levy said uh, we cannot spend more on players um, the money has to be saved for the stadium rebuild and the, that, that's more important to the long term future of the club than, than the purchases um, that you want to make at that time and Mitchell is now um, head of uh, recruitment for Red Bull um, so there's a possibility there, there's an opportunity there for Tottenham to get a guy who is regarded as being one of the best um, judges of talent and sports directors in world football and it would be ironic I think if he did, if that does pan out and Tottenham end up with the Jose Mourinho-Lewis campus um, partnership that Manchester United had the opportunity to hire because Mourinho, when Ed Woodward decided or started talking about going down the director of football route, Mourinho was resistant to um, some of the names that were being proposed and suggested that Luis Campos would be a better alternative. But Woodward refused to interview Campos at the time. I know that Campos was interested in taking that job. So, um, it would be ironic if, uh, if uh, a year or so down the line, you end up with the pair of them working at uh, one of Manchester United's direct rivals rather than at Old Trafford while United um, soldier on with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and the, uh, the largest scouting staff in world football, mainly hired by a, a London recruitment company. Well, I'm... Pretty sure that uh, Campos has been directly involved in the scouting and or of players who were since been sold for around a total of half a billion pounds. Now, can you imagine having a man at your club who could make you that kind of money and not only make you that kind of but bring the players in the first place and they're so good that they then become valued at that? I think Campos is long overdue a move from Lille. Uh, to be quite honest, Duncan, is he st he's still at Lille? Is that Alan, correct? He's still at Lille. Um, Christophe Gaultier was asked about the possibility of um, campus moving to Tottenham uh, last week in that kind of angry press conference he, he gave after losing his uh, assistant coach, Jean Sacramento, and his goalkeeping coach, um, Nuno Santos, to Mourinho without um, any forewarning from the, the Portuguese coach. And he said, Luis is 200% invested in the project and I don't see a thousandth of a wish to look elsewhere. We're close and looking forward. Now, it's it's definitely the case um, 
that Campus will not leave Leo unless the project is right for him. Um, he's a very important part of that. He's very highly regarded by Leo's owner. I understand he's, he's well paid there, so he would be an expensive hire um, in the sports director area for Tottenham. Um, he had the opportunity to move to Roma in the summer as a replacement for Monchi. Went and talked to Roma, wasn't impressed by um, problems within the club and decided it would be a backward move for him to go here and rejected that opportunity. So it would it would require persuasion, it would require spending on um, Tottenham's part. But as you say, his track record in terms of recruiting players and profit made on those players um, would suggest that that could be just about the best investment you could make in, in terms of a, a, um, a, a technical staff hire um, for a club like Tottenham um, with the squad they already have, but the potential to build it up with the finances they have. Because remember, we, we said in the podcast that one of, one of the aspects of, of Tottenham is that they're... Um, they made record profits in the last financial year. Uh, their uh, wage to turnover ratio in the last financial year was under 40%. The stadium is built. It's been refinanced on low interest rates. The training ground is built. You're basically everything's in place to grow that project uh, and turn them into not just a, you know, a, a, a proper contender for the Premier League, and you know that, that it does require significant work, but the groundwork is there. But also a proper contender in the Champions League, um, particularly if the club is sold. Uh, you know, we we know that the, informally the club has been on the market for a long time. That Joe Lewis would be prepared to sell for the right money. So you you have this almost like a a, a one stop shop of of a, a club that has stadium training ground, now has a, a high-profile manager with a record of, of winning major trophies. Um, you know, it, it even has a, an, uh, an American football pitch built into the stadium. So if you're an American investor and you're looking to um, get a stadium in London where you could um, have NFL clubs coming over or even have an, the first NFL out of the United States franchise based there, um, you know, the potential is huge. And, and all of these things were considered by Levy when he put this project together. So it's a really interesting time for Tottenham. Really interesting time. I imagine the Lille chairman did not see the six or seven minute or so interview stroke profile done by Sky Sports on Luis Campos not more than two months ago, which uh, basically um, read like an advert for uh, please come and get me any Premier League club. I am available. So that's 200% figure invested in the real project. Not quite sure about that, but let's wait and see. It is Monday's Transfer Window podcast, which means we'll end today with the Heroes and Villains section. I'm going to hand over to Duncan for his villain of the weekend or the last few days. Duncan, anyone be uh, particularly noising you up? Not on Twitter, of course. <laughs> Well, I think the villain for this week would be the wonderful analytical expertise of Steve McManaman, who um, Premier League Television had on doing a bit of commentary about Tottenham's first match under Jose Mourinho. And his assessment was, I didn't think it was a particularly daunting or hard game for Jose's first game. Um, I think if Mauricio Pochettino was manager, they would still have went there and got a result. 
um, which I found quite an interesting comment given that we are talking about the same Maurizio Pochettino who hadn't won an away Premier League game since January. So um, uh, intriguing that that uh, McManaman had identified that one as being the easy match that he was going to end his, um, his uh, 10 months away win drought in and uh, wasn't prepared to credit anything on towards the players or the change of setup or uh, the change of um, uh, motivational approach um, that had all gone into that victory at West Ham United. Well, not just one hero this week for me, but 11, 13, 14, however many you want to call it, it's Sheffield United, a team whose performance was so impressive against the big club that is Manchester United, but not such a great team at this moment in time, we have to say. Um, but they took the game to them. Probably should have got more than a point out of it. But nonetheless, it was extremely entertaining. Great to see a promoted club be as courageous in their approach to the game as that. And um, I think they deserve this week's Hero Award. Please get in touch. Um, as always, on Twitter, we're at Transfer Podcast. Duncan's at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. You can also log on to our Facebook and Instagram accounts, which are also at Transfer Podcast. Many ways that you can get in touch with us. So to continue to that debate today, as I said, or indeed uh, to get your questions in, because it's your questions answered on our next podcast of the week coming your way on Wednesday. Please uh, think about them. We love getting the uh, interesting and uh, hopefully we can bring some answers and insight on the things that you want to ask us. Always, uh, please, if you do like what you hear, get onto iTunes, give us a five-star review. And as you know, the whole community grows exponentially. Uh, much more to talk about when we're back with you. Until Wednesday, we shall see you through the transfer window. Thanks for listening. Hey.